Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Carlos Ruiz Zafon, who died on June 19, 2020, in Los Angeles of colorectal cancer, burst onto the literary scene in 2001 with his novel, The Shadow of the Wind. I had a chance to interview him in May 2009 for The Angels Game, second in his series of novels about the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. The next book in the series, The Prisoner of Heaven, came out in 2012, and the final book, The Labyrinth of Spirits, was published in 2018. My guest is Carlos Ruiz Zafon, whose latest novel is The Angels Game author of six novels, four novels published as young adult novels, The Fog Trilogy and Marina. Before this, The Shadow of the Wind. From what I read, Shadow of the Wind and Angel's Game are two parts of a projected quartet revolving around a place called the Cemetery of Forgotten Books in Barcelona. I guess I want to start by asking you about that. Is that what came first before you began working on these novels, just the idea of this place? Yes, actually, this is the Cemetery of Forgotten Books is pretty much the point of departure. I've noticed through the years that every time I work, uh, start working on a new book and a new story, the beginning is always an image. And this is an image that intrigues me that usually is some kind of visual metaphor for something. And I think for a few days around it and I decide that there's a story behind it. And actually, when I, I remember, I got this notion of this cemetery of forgotten books. And, uh, and after thinking a while and, and seeing what it meant to me, I decided that there had to be a story or stories behind it. And I started working on Shadow of the Wind. Well, going back to these young adult novels, I understand the first one, you did not even see it as a young adult novel, but you found it marketed that way. Were the others then geared that way or just published that way? I think what happened is I became a young adult author by accident because it so happened that my first published novel won a big award that was given for in Spain back in 1992 uh, for young adult fiction. And that came with a sizable amount of cash. Of course, I was starting my career as a, as a working writer. And then you become very kind of conservative and very cautious because, of course, if you're able to make a living doing something, I became just too cautious, and, and I was afraid to jump out of a train that I was actually leading somewhere. And it turned out that I had found success in a field that I never thought I would find success because I never meant to be a young adult author, but it seems like that had just happened. So I kept writing books that I never thought that they were really young adult books, and many readers didn't think so either. Many adults would read them and say, but this stuff is kind of scary. I have to read it with the, with the lights on. And and I said, well, you know, yeah, it has some characters that are young in them. That's the only thing that I can say of. And I remember that for years I thought, you know, somebody's going to knock on my door at 3 o'clock in the morning and arrest me and say, you've been faking being a young adult author. And at that time I decided that I didn't want to keep on pretending anymore. I felt that 
as fine a feel as that is, it was not really my, my, my natural register and that I had to move on. I had to expand my palette and try to, to write exactly the books I wanted to write. And then I wrote a fourth novel, Marina, which was some kind of hybrid. And I think that was the one that proved to me that I needed to, to get out of that field. After that came Shadow of the Wind, which was my very first novel in which there were no limitations that I had put on myself that I could attribute to, to the fact that it was, it was just a novel. When you say limitations on yourself, what were you specifically thinking about? There are more than limitations. There are some concerns of things you are not going to do in a young adult novel in terms of issues of tone, sometimes or ex of extension, or even of complexity. There are some things that you try to keep uh, within certain limits, and not because anybody's forcing you to, but because you think that maybe that's what you should do, which is a kind of a strange thing. It's just a prejudice you impose on yourself. And at some point, I realized that, that I could not do that any longer, that I didn't want to do it, and I had to just be true to myself and write what I wanted to write without thinking about this kind of limits or this kind of limitations. At that point, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, you just suddenly got this image of this place Oh, I think this is something that came from from different from different things. I remember at the time I was living in California. I was living in Los Angeles, and I had been. I remember driving sometimes around California, especially in Los Angeles, and finding these fantastic used bookstores that were usually in some kind of derelict part of town, undesirable part of town, which was the only place where these people could afford the rent. And some of them were just fantastic. It was this treasure copes where you could find wonderful books, and and for for fifty cents for 25 cents and I remember that quite often there was nobody there I started thinking about that stuff and thinking I don't know all these books here fantastic stuff nobody's paying any attention to and and I don't know it was something during the rounds in my mind and also I think living in Los Angeles coming as I do I was born and raised in Barcelona which is kind of a very old city haunted by its own history and then going and, and being in Los Angeles, in which the, the inverse is true, Los Angeles is a much older city than, than it seems, but there's something about the nature of the place. It, it seems to be constantly erasing history. And I remember I was very concerned about what I call the destruction of history, the destruction of memory. And I was thinking about that because I always thought, you know, we are what we remember, and the less we remember, the less we are. And I think this combination of, of seeing all these books lying there in these fantastic bookstores, nobody was paying any attention to. And this sense that memory was being kept lost, so there was even an industrial process of destroying memory history, the notion of where we're coming from, the things that have happened before, our identities. This somehow crystallized in this image for a place that to me was a metaphor. It was a metaphor not just for forgotten books, but for forgotten ideas, for forgotten identities, for the destruction of memory. And, and to me, this what this cemetery of forgotten books meant. And I thought that there were interesting stories behind that and that I wanted to tell them and explore them. Two threads to go here. One is Gore Vidal once said that this is the United States of amnesia. Which makes me wonder, since you were, this happened while you were living in L.A., if there's any difference between, say, the United States loss of memory and loss of memory over in Spain. And the other thread, which is entirely different, is that the first person I thought of was Borges. Yeah, I think that, that this loss of memory of identity, it, it, it happens everywhere, more or less. I think that sometimes, perhaps, by the very nature of American society, but there's always looking for a word, living in the moment, or, or this, I think there's something about the creation of this society of people from all over, from different places, trying to find a different life, trying to find material success, trying to get, and I think this uh, takes you, 
in many ways puts your glance always in the future, which gives a, a very dynamic energy. When you go to Europe, for instance, of course, everything seems like it's been there forever. And, and, and the, a lot of people get this sense that it's very hard to change things. You come to the United States and you find that people believe that if you work hard, you can do anything. It's part of the mythology of the place. Well, part of the mythology of older places is that you cannot change anything. What even bother? Don't even try. So it's interesting how these things are. They come from the land, from the place. And we are born into one place or the other. And we tend to absorb it because they are all around us. What happens is that when you keep changing between places and you go to places where these things are different, you start wondering about them because you don't take them for granted anymore because you see why some people feel that way, why some other people feel in another way. You start thinking about it and trying to figure out the reasons and it intrigues you. And to me, this this sense of losing memory, losing history, losing your identity is something that concerns me. I, but I see happening everywhere. In many ways, I think it's it's a natural process. You know, eventually, everybody, peoples around the world tend to lose their memory or sweep things under the rug. But there's always somebody interested in you losing your memory and not really getting a, a really clear idea of what happened before, what went before, and where we are going. You know, the less you know about your past, the less you can control your future. And of course, there's always interest everywhere that want you to do that. So there's there's rarely forces trying to preserve history or memory or trying to make people aware of their identities. I think it's quite the opposite. So I think that's what it's interesting to explore this, this, these issues. And the Borges influence must have been there. It's always been. I think Borges is, was a fantastical inventor of literary artifacts. Sometimes I think of Borges more than as a storyteller, as an inventor of literary concepts. And when you go through his work, you find these flashes, these tiny little things, these pieces. There are concepts, it's, and they seem that they're lying there waiting for somebody to develop them. And a lot of the times you say, you know, behind this, there's a page and there's a notion, say, there, there's a great idea, but I would like this to be fleshed out and, and, and develop into a great story. And he rarely did that. He, he would like to invent these little pieces and create these miniatures. And, and, and of course, yes, there's, there's a strong influence. There's a strong influence, I think, from, from many different traditions and things. And Borges, of course, is something that you've read, especially if you read at a young age, an impressionable young age makes you wonder about many things and make you question a lot of things about literature, about storytelling, because these very powerful notions, these artifacts he creates really ignite your imagination and invite you to start thinking, what would happen if, if you took one of these things and tried to evolve from them and try to create something out of this notion or combine things? The reason I mentioned that, of course, is because the idea is Borgesian, I guess. Yeah. But the writing itself, of course, is, is something else. People have called it Dickensian. For me, I see it as Dickensian on the one hand, but particularly in Angel's Game, I also see Chandler there. There's this feeling of that dryness of L.A. somehow impinging upon Barcelona. Well, I think you mentioned two very interesting and some of the greatest stylists of all time, I think. When you go to Dickens, and nowadays we can go to Dickens 150 years after some of these masterworks having created the power of the prose, the power of the images, the, the drive, the structure, the music of that prose is stunning and kicks the ass of 99% of the stuff that is being published nowadays. And you see, and this guy was writing at a time when you have to be aware that a lot of the the science of a storytelling that has evolved through the 20th century, a lot of the things we know today about storytelling uh, was not really that clear, but he was doing all this stuff and he was creating these fascinating images, this rich Baroque atmosphere, this kind of Gothic Victorian intensity. 
and and I always thought that what he was doing was fascinating. It's one of my favorite writers and one of my main influence. But on the other hand, you go to Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler is this fantastic stylist, and one, the reason is that since he started being published in what was considered pulp fiction or whatever, for many years I think he was looked upon as something minor, and and I think especially because it caught up with him the second half of the 20th century with all this kind of invention of prejudices of the highbrow, the lowbrow, this kind of pretension and snobbery quite often corroding the, the essence of what is the literary world. And I think because of that, a lot of people have either not approached Raymond Chandler or thought, well, yeah, he was a, an author of crime stories. Of course, he was an author of crime stories. But these crime stories are so extremely well-written, are so well-crafted, they did succeed and transcend as great literature. And it doesn't matter what he was writing about. He could have been writing about, newspaper, I don't know, about supermarket bags. The guy was extremely brilliant, but... But the place, the world he was living in, inspired him was this stories of corruption, of where, of, of a world in which, of this mirage in which nothing was what, what pretended to be. And he wrote these mystery stories, and he invented a great canon in the genre that many writers still to this day are using and exploiting. And the Angels Game, there's, there's of course, these are books, Shadows of the Wind of the Angels Game, these are books that are about the world of books, of literature, of style, of language, of writing, of reading. And, and they use many references. They may use many things. And one of the things I'm trying to do is combine many genres, combine many elements, many techniques, everything we know about the storytelling, try to combine them to tell a story in a more efficient way. In the case of The Angel's Game, is a story with many elements of mystery, of thriller, and, and other things. But of course, incorporating all these elements that come from Raymond Chandler, from this great generation, James L. Cain, all these people who were fantastic writers, and we seem to, to forget that. We, we seem to think that, well, they just were pulp fiction writers. You know, I always thought that there are just two kinds of writing. It's, it's good writing and bad writing, and I, and I don't care in what form it comes. Sometimes it's science fiction, sometimes it's a mainstream novel, sometimes it's a crime thriller. If it's well done, if it's well written, to me, it's good, period. You're listening to an interview with Carlos Ruiz Zafon, whose latest book is The Angel's Game. You've said that, in essence, what you're trying to do on some level is take these big 19th century novels, people like Dickens, Tolstoy, Wilkie Collins, reconstruct them using 20th century tools, the grammar of cinema, multimedia, and general fiction. What do you think you're doing in terms of the grammar of cinema or multimedia in a, in a book like this? Because it seems to me that that's what would separate it out from, say, earlier books. Readers of today, to me, are extremely sophisticated and not even aware of that. I think that, for instance, we go back, we think of the readers of Dickens. The readers of Dickens or Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, or Dumas, or Balzac had never been subjected to all these different disciplines, all these different forms of storytelling as we are subjected today. Nowadays, just because of the world we're growing up, Instinctively, we are able to decode very different narrative languages that come from film, from television, from all sorts of genres of literature, from modernist fiction, from noir fiction, from mainstream fiction, that come from comic books, that come from Japanese anime, from advertising, from graphic design, all these different forms of coding, of, of storytelling, of languages that, that can be used to transmit and communicate. And what I'm interested is, I think, if I'm writing for, for an audience, for, for readers who have all these kind of decoding machines installing their brains, ready to be stimulated, are they ready to receive signals to say, why not try to book a, try to write books that work on many layers and many levels and that transmit signals in all these frequencies that can stimulate the reader's brain to provide a more intense reading experience. 
experience. And then I'll use everything. And one of the things I think is very interesting is because now we are so self-aware of this storytelling conventions, of, of, of the mechanics of story, I think we can use the grammar that has evolved. I always thought the grammar of cinema evolved at first from playwriting and from 19th century novels, eventually it became something on its own and advanced and advanced enormously and created a very rich tradition of storytelling. So if up to well into the 20th century, novels were incorporating things from all other genres and we're learning from all other genres, why cannot we try to use a lot of the things that we know about storytelling to enrich the discourse of a novel? So in that sense, I'll use everything and I'll use a lot of the techniques and the storytelling of using images, of creating patterns, of using movement, of using light and trying to project all these things into the brain of the reader, you know, with great production values and all these serious widescreen to try to at some point, try to create books that may even disappear from your hands and you forget that you're holding a piece of paper with ink markings and that and that you're inside that world because that is another layer in which the story can work. And I, and I think it's very interesting to try to experiment with that. And, and the more advanced, the more I'm trying to do that, to do this, these books that work in many different layers to provide the most intense reading experience possible. It sounds to me that that's a good reason why it took eight years to work on the Angels game. It also sounds that more than likely, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, what you did was a first draft, and then you took that first draft and almost reconstructed it from scratch, using that first draft almost as a template for what would later emerge. Is that pretty much it? Well, the way I work more and more, what I've noticed is that I don't really work on a first draft and then I go back. What I'm doing is I rewrite everything to death. So in many ways, yeah, probably process would be analog to what you're suggesting. But the way I do it is rather than write a first draft of a story and then go back and start reconstructing, I'm constantly doing that as I write. So I never have a first or a second draft. It's constantly a work in progress at all levels. It's like a big construction site until it's done. And when it's done, it's locked. And then I work and rewrite and rewrite everything to death. And then I'll rewrite it again until it does exactly what I want it to do. And when I feel that I, I cannot push it any further, that I, I don't know how to make it any better, not because it cannot be made better, because I don't know how to. And since I build a machine, nobody can either because it's my machine. Then I say, this is locked. This is closed and nobody touches a comma. And this is what it gets published. Now, when you're looking back on it, do you think you stopped at the right point? I think I did because I think I think over the years you develop a sense that you know if the book you've written is the book you wanted to write. And it's something that is between you, between the author and the book. And and I'm not trying to second-guess uh, readers or try to please expectations of readers, say, well, what they're expecting. I'm I don't think I should be doing that. I, sh I think I should be trying to be honest to the book I'm writing, to the story I'm writing, and service the characters, the world, to the best of my ability. And I get, I get a sense, of course, you can't be wrong. It's a very subjective impression. But you get a point where you see, you know, I set out to do something, and this is it. This is what I wanted to do. And that's it, good or bad, or right or wrong. But this is what you wanted to do. And at some point, you know if you achieved what you wanted or not, or if something completely unknown came out and you don't know what, what the hell that is. I, I don't like to work that way. I like to get to the point where I wanted to go. 
and as long as it takes me and as hard as the way may be but but once you're there to me the work is done and to me the angels game is exactly the book and every book i've published published six novels so far if they are not that they are not published you know if they're not exactly the book i set out to write uh, i don't think it belongs in the world is there a cemetery of forgotten carlos ruiz zafon manuscripts I started publishing books in 1992, and before that, when I've been writing forever since I was a child, and I've written tons of short stories, and I wrote a couple of novels, and I wrote many things before when I was a child, when I was a teenager. And at some point, I, um, I started publishing material when I thought that this material was what I wanted it to be, that I had acquire a minimum proficiency to, to be able to produce material decent enough not to embarrass me and to say, yes, this is what I want to do and I hope people enjoy it and find something of value in it, but this is what I want to do. I'm kind of stubborn, so if the work is not working, I'll just rewrite it to death until it works and then it's in publishable form. But before that, yes, there were many things that I wrote that I needed to write them to, to learn, to, to experiment, but that, uh, that they shouldn't be published. Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Let's go back for a second to Shadow of the Wind. So you've got this idea, you write this novel. As you were working on it, was that when you decided that this would be four books of varying sorts centered around Barcelona? Or did that come afterward? Or is it still kind of nebulous that it will be four books? This came right at the very beginning. I think when I was started working on the story, I thought that since the first notion and the first chapter of Shadow of the Wind is the introduction into this play is a cemetery of forgotten books, I thought that maybe I could do these four stories that I had in mind in one book. But I, I soon realized that it would be impossible because that would transform, that would produce a 4,000-page book, and that would be just ridiculous, you know, would be the size of, of a truck. And on top of that, it would ruin what to me was the worst thing. It would ruin the structure and the style and the personality of these four different books. Because to me, the idea and what was interesting to me was to create four stories that would be completely independent and standalone, but that could work together. It was not kind of a saga or a sequential storyline. These were four stories that were interconnected through certain elements. It was kind of a puzzle, some kind of Chinese box or labyrinth of stories. Ideally, you could read any of these books or all of them in any order. And depending on the order you took, or if you read one or two or three or four, your experience as a reader would be different and the puzzle would keep rearranging in front of your eyes and you would find new connections between the characters and the places and all of them would intersect at the cemetery of forgotten books. And I thought this was what could be interesting and each one of them would have its own personality and they would all revolve around the world of books, of storytelling, of literature and many things and they would incorporate all the classic themes of literature and, and try to combine all the all the genres and all the techniques that exist and all the tricks in the book, try to make all that work and through different angles, through different perspectives. And I had a very general outline and idea of the four stories, but I thought that the right way to do, since each one of these books was going to be complex, is work in each one of them at a time. Each one of them was going to take a long time to write. And the right way to do it would be that. And of course, since this was an ongoing process, as I kept working, I kept getting new ideas and reconsidering my ideas. And that kept interesting for me and kept it alive. And I thought as long as it's interesting to me, I'll continue trying to complete this quartet because this is how I can make it interesting to readers. I have to believe in it first. And, and I decided, you know, I would like to complete this idea, this project someday, but uh, I'll have to do it one book at a time and maybe between 
some of these books, I'll write something different. I never managed to write these four books one after the other. So far, I'm in the middle of the journey, and and so far, I'm I'm, I'm still interested in that. If at some point I was not interested in this idea, I, I would leave it. But it's something that I would like to do, and I think I keep thinking about it. It's a notion that came to me some time ago, but I keep rearranging it in my mind. I keep finding new possibilities. I think, you know, this could be really, really a cool thing. And and, and I think if I manage to complete it, it can be an interesting piece of fiction. The way I look at it is that if you read The Angels Game first, then Shadow of the Wind becomes a very clear sequel. But if you read Shadow of the Wind first, then in that sense, Daniel's parents become clearer in a different way. So you could go either way, and each way brings you into Barcelona in different ways. Yeah, you, you're entering the same world, and you explore the same world through different en- doors of entry. So depending, if you read the Angels game first, you can experience the Shadow of the Wind differently, and the same way, the other way around us. So, or if you just read one or the other, you get a, a perfectly rounded and standalone story. They have these connections, and I think that this what makes the, the whole thing exciting, the fact that one book alters the other. The mere observation of one of the stories transforms the other story. It kind of removes it in a way out of time. Barcelona itself is a character in these books. In Angel's Game, there are different areas. I, I don't know anything about Barcelona. It's one of those places that I really want to go to but haven't gone to. The Raval Quarter, the location of the tower, Vidal's Villa, the Old Quarter. Are these places real? Are they in your mind? If I were to go to Barcelona, could I do a tour of Zafon, or would I find myself lost in a mythological Barcelona of the 30s? As a matter of fact, there are five different companies organized tours in Barcelona now around these books, and I have no connection with them whatsoever, but the fact that they do this because you can go and find all these places. And some of them, I would say 99% of what you're reading about exists. And the other 1% could have existed or is very similar. Sometimes the, the, the very necessities of the plot make you invent something or put a building in a place where it's not. But that's very similar to something that exists in another part of town or two blocks from there. So I try. one of the things I try to do is even though I use Barcelona as a character, I'm very honest and true to its history, to its background, and to the to the physical reality of the city. What I'm doing is subjected to an extreme stylization. So in many ways, the staging, the way everything is dressed up, the way you could, you could say it's photographed, is extremely stylized. But it's always using reality as what is in there. And it's being always very honest to the, to the historical circumstances, to the social uh, circumstances of the time. So I'm trying to explore that and dramatize it and give it, of course, some kind of mythological meaning and, and, and make it operatic and make it grandiose in many ways, but always departing from, from what is there, from the reality of, of the place. Barcelona itself and Spain itself, for those of us in America, almost arrived full-blown at the time of the Spanish Civil War, meaning that We don't get much history about what happened prior to that, which is when the Angels game occurs. So in in essence, you're starting with a lost city, though maybe not from the perspective of people in Spain. I don't know. 
Well, I think that for a lot of people, you know, the, the world, the old world of the 20s, even for readers of today or even for American readers, say how much would we really know or American readers do really know about the American of the 20s, a lot of those things are kind of lost and some people are more aware of those things, but it it could be a lost world, it, it, but it's much closer than, than we think. I think that when we go back and explore, it's a world that is really around the corner and it's, it's essentially it's the creation of the world where we are living in today and it's extremely relevant. One of the things I try to do is you don't need to know anything about the time. I think what I try to dramatize the circumstances, the atmosphere. So in, in many ways, instinctively, you're already absorbing and understanding the time, not, not because I'm lecturing you or trying to, something historical novels tend to to fail into a mode in which it seems that the author has done a lot of research and then he just bombards you with this research. And that in dramatic terms doesn't work. So you have to do a lot of research and then not use any of it because you need to know about those things. So you create dramatic elements that in many ways transmit all this knowledge to the reader, but not in terms of raw data, but in terms of dramatic function. And then the reader can understand and absorb certain times at a certain place without the need to having to go through all that research. I think that's a very interesting thing to do. And this is what I'm trying to do with the world of the 1920s or the 30s. What kind of government did Spain have? What kind of government did Barcelona have in the 20s and into the early 30s? Essentially, the time frame of the story is the first third of the 20th century. And in back in the time, this is in, in Spain and it's in, most and it's in most of Europe, an extremely turbulent time politically. There's constantly changes of government. There are extremes. There's political violence. Essentially, it's a very convoluted era in which is a lot of the troubles that are going to crystallize finally first in, in, first, in, in most of Europe in the First World War and finally explode in World War II. Essentially, the same process is going on in Spain and, and in the Spanish Civil War is just a prelude, uh, a product to, to the World War II. In the case of the Angels game, most of ma the main action is set in the late 20s and the early 30s. At that time, we go from extreme changes of government. We go from the first republic, which is the, the regime, very liberal regime, that decomposes right before in the slippers love towards the, uh, the Spanish Civil War. We have previously some kind of quiet dictatorship that lasts a few years by General Primo de Rivera. We have other Republican governments. We have the fall of monarchy. We have a lot of different. It's an extremely rich and convoluted time. And one of the interesting things about it, I think, is in most of Europe at the time, is this dark undercurrents of elements that are slowly driving the world to disaster. There are a lot of things, there are a lot of explosion and clashes of ideology, there's a lot of dogmatic thought, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of extreme crisis, political, economical, and cultural, and spiritual, and all those things are leading slowly, slowly towards the great explosion of violence and the, mid and the World War II and the Spanish Civil War. One of the things I was trying to do was to portray this and to portray all these elements in literary ways and this creating this menacing world, this kind of sinister world that it seems where everything is haunted, that the places are haunted, that even the skies are poisoned by all this hate, but all these things are going around and that eventually are going to lead to disaster. I think this is very present in the story. I'm trying to dramatize that, not necessarily talking about or giving lectures about the political situation at the time, but making you feel those things right there, in just in purely dramatic terms. You have different books 
described. One is Lux Eterna, which is the book that David Martin takes out of the Cemetery of Forgotten Books, which is this giant labyrinth. Mm -hmm. And then you have his own books. Outside of a brief description of the 30-odd novels that he writes, these gothic thrillers that he writes uh, for a couple of pulp publishers in his early mid-20s, you don't really say anything about these books. It's you talk around them, not giving any idea of what they actually are. In your own mind, do either of these books, the book he wrote for Corelli, as well as his own published novels, do those exist in your own mind, or, or don't you know what they are either? Yeah, they are. And I think that I, w I would contradict you in saying that in the case of the stories that he writes, these serials, these grand guignol gothic thrillers, many items of, of them are described for the reader to get a glimpse. What, what I don't do is, is, is include portions of them, because I think that that would in many ways detract from the main narrative. If I start including a different book, a different story inside the story, it could be interesting in terms, but I think I wonder about that. I wonder about the possibility of including this text in there, but I thought that it would not be dramatically efficient, and the story itself was rich enough and complex enough to not need this complication. So I would rather give a hint to, to readers about what kind of a story. I always thought that what would be really interesting is if Angel's Game read as if it were David Martin's masterpiece, that were the culmination of this series of thrillers he's writing called The City of the Damned that combine many things and there are an homage to this kind of over-the-top Victorian gothics from the 19th century. I thought, you know, it could be interesting if if parts of the Angels game reflect that or try to be an homage to those kind of stories. And in many ways, it is the very nate, the very story, since it's always written in the first person by David Martin, it's also like the great culmination of this series. In the, in the same way that in, in the case of Shadow of the Wind, there's another writing residence inside the story with Julian Carax, and I felt, you know, it would be fun if Shadow of the Wind read as if it were one of Julian Carax's novels, and in many ways, the book you're reading about and the book you're reading at the end, in the last page, they emerge and become one. Almost like this hall of mirrors that are constantly breaking, like um, at the end of... Lady from Shanghai, yeah. yes, that fantastic sequence with all this, you know, where it seems like reality is completely deconstructed and rearranged in this hall of mirrors. I think it's a very interesting idea, and there's something that I try to do, the hall of mirrors idea in literature. Without giving much away, toward the end of Angel's Game, David Martin tells the detective a story, and the detective checks it out. There are three answers here. Martin is an unreliable narrator. The second answer is that the world that he's visited is a completely different world from the one that the cop visited. The third answer is that the cop's a liar. Do you know which one they are, and can you <laughs> can you illuminate? I do, but one of the things I wanted to do, and this is one of the things that will be revealed in the future in some of the other books, but one of the things that the Angels game tries to do is to create a story that implicates the reader in the process of a storytelling, so you complete the story. Going back to the idea of the Hall of Mirrors, depending on what you're bringing in, depending on who you are, this Hall of Mirrors is going to provide you a different image of yourself, of the story. And you're going to interpret it in different ways. And you can interpret it in a number of different ways. And all of them click. This is because you become part of the story and, and you have to implicate yourself. And this is when you have these possibilities. Martin could be an unreliable narrator or all these fantastical events that have been happening could be as he imagined them or as he felt them. And this is a supernatural story, kind of Faustian tale, or is a psychological intrigue, 
or it can be different things and all of these things click and all these things make sense and i think what's interesting is enter there's a game with the with the reader around the form of storytelling about how the reader completes the story and the story will be completed in many ways although it's complete in the story but which one of these possibilities is will be revealed in the future and we'll see exactly what the author says what happened that's part of the story, that the story gets complicated and these books keep sprawling in different directions. And at this case, I thought it would be very interesting to, to allow the, the reader to become part of the story and shape the story as the story goes. So my question is a question you want asked. Yeah, I want to ask. The book drives you to that, drives you to at some point start saying, wait a minute, and start thinking about it and start interpreting and start interpreting the moral choices that the character is, 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 is having and, and taking and in many ways thinking which one would you take? What does this mean to you? In enter this hall of mirrors in which a lot of the things that you have inside of you are going to be revealed. And of course, I wanted this to happen. Is that why the actual title of the book, The Angels Game, is so obscure? It's because it's a title that means many things. Because yes, there are some angels in the story or some approximation of angels we can understand in different ways. And there's a game, but there are many games in this story. And there's one game with a particularly sinister angel, yes. There's also a game with the reader, and there are many games with the reader. So, and so, so that is what, yeah, the, even the title can be read in, in different ways because that's what the story is trying to tell you. The angel in question, if he is an angel, is someone named Corelli. And I kept thinking of a book called Corelli's Mandolin. Is there any connection? Not really with that book, with the Louis de Vernier novel. Corelli, Andreas Corelli, is a, is a character I've used before in one of my young adult novels, so to speak, very briefly, and that reappears here in a more significant role. The private joke in this case, the reference, would not be with Captain Corelli of the novel, but with the Italian Baroque composer Arcangelo Corelli. And of course, Arcangelo, an archangel, is an angel. In this case, uh, Andreas Corelli is, is some kind of angel, or maybe not, but certainly is a kind of a very sinister angel. Are there any other kind of little goodies in the book that you've thrown in? There are tons of them. I think what I think is fun is that the, the reader finds them and discovers them. And I think depending on what is your baggage, depending on what you bring into the game, what are your cards, you're going to find a lot of very different goodies. But the entire book is riddled with them. What about the name Pedro Vidal? Well, this is not necessarily a, um, there's not a reference here. It's, it's a common name. Vidal is, is a common last name in Spain, in Barcelona. And in this case, it's, there's sometimes there are names that have a resonance or have a, in this case of Pedro Vidal, he's it's just, just the name of the character without any reference whatsoever. I noticed in a, in a lot of the reviews of the book, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, I've noticed people are trying to read into these books. And I know that there's a lot that you're bringing into it, but is there a possibility that they're reading too much into it? When someone says this is about the Faustian bargain every writer makes, is that reading too much into it or not? Well, you know, reviews are, are commentaries when somebody makes in a public forum in a newspaper. And I think they have to be respected, but I think they have to be put in their in the right perspective. I mean, it's you review something, you go there and you write a page about something you've read, and that's it, you know. And 
I don't think an author should challenge or not. I think a lot of these reviews are very predictable. You know they're going to happen. The people are going to say that or going to say the other thing. And, you know, it's part of the game. It's okay. I think what is important is the wider reception or how readers react. Sometimes a review can be very good, can be very hostile. And there are all sorts of reviews. I don't know. I'm, I'm not very concerned to that. I think it's just something that happens. You know, your work is public, so some people are going to come in or not or a magazine or a newspaper, and it's okay. And, you know, and I don't think I should challenge that or see that I agree or not disagree. You know, the thing is... Uh, you have to put those things, the good and the bad, and and the, on those strange or the, or the ones that you read and say, oh, my God, this completely misses the point. Sometimes even being positive or negative, there are a lot of these reviews completely miss the point or don't understand anything about the work. And this is very common, and we see with movies, with books, with many things. And it's okay. You know, nothing happens. I mean, it's part, part of the ecology of publishing, and, and, and it's perfectly, perfectly okay with me. And I don't like to challenge it because I think, you know, they deserve their respect, and that doesn't mean that you have to take them to heart and think that, oh, my God, there's truth revealed. It's, it's just a commentary, nothing else. These books have been translated by Lucia Graves, the daughter of Robert Graves. You're obviously fluent in English. Why did you choose to have an external translator rather than yourself? I'm very involved in the process of translating these books, but what I don't want to do really is to translate the book twice or, or to write the book twice. You know, I've already written that book. The way I work, everything has been rewritten to death, so I don't really want to write it again because I would rather move on and work on something new. What I'm very concerned, of course, is to make sure that the translation is as close as possible to the original, that the music of the prose, that the patterns, that the dynamics, that everything, the movement, the whole orchestration of the language is exactly as it is in the original. And although some things are always lost, tiny details are always lost when you're traveling from one language to another, what I make sure is that what the reader is getting in the case of the English translation is exactly the original, so that an English reader coming from English will start reading these books and forget that they're a translation or don't care at all because it could, they could come from English. And the way the way I do this, I've been lucky to be able to work with Lucia Graves, who's extremely talented and very, and she's not really a translator. She has translated uh, some of her father's work, but usually she's a writer on her own right. She writes nonfiction. She writes fiction. And uh, we started working together years ago when, when Shadow of the Wind was first published in Spain originally in 2001. She read it on the first week of publication. She bought the book on the streets and she read it and she liked it very much. And she contacted my agent and said, I would like to translate this book. At the time, we didn't even have offers from English-speaking publishers because it was the very first week of publication in Spanish. Eventually, these offers came and there was the whole thing. We closed the deal and the issue of translation, of course, came back. At the time, I remember that a number of translators submitted a sample chapter to, to give a sense of what they would do, where, where we are. And none of these uh, chapters were was really working. So I suggested that we should try to work with Lucia because she had a passion for the project and I thought that she was much more capable to, to work in and, and the things. And, and what, what we did, we started working on with Lucia in a way in which she, she would write, I don't know, she would translate a few chapters, she would send them to me, I would start reworking them, rewriting things. I would send that to her, she would see what I was doing, and she would pick a lot of those things. And and she's very talented and very smart, and very quickly she picked up a lot of the things, saying, now I see what you mean, now I see what you want to do. So we kept on working on this way, this kind of loop, and perfecting everything, making sure that everything got to the point, which to me is the mark of a good translation, which is 
that a translation is invisible. Sometimes I get the impression, because I get a lot of questions about that, that English readers tend to think that translators reinvent books or they rewrite them or that they change something. And that's not the case. That's a myth. And and the only translations that are visible is when they are badly done. And then you get this awkward feeling, you know, the clunkiness to the text to say, there's something strange in here. This it feels odd. This language feels odd. It feels odd because it's not well translated. When it's well translated, it's invisible, which is the pity of, of the translator's work because it's a very demanding work and it takes very hard work. And but sometimes when it's well done, it's you know you don't notice about it. The only place that I ever noticed it is in uh, Solzhenitsyn, where First Circle in English is a better book than Cancer Ward, but apparently in Russian, Cancer Ward is a better book. But in other books like uh, you know Cien Años de Soledad, you know, or the works of uh, Arturo Perez Reverte. You wouldn't know. Yeah, essentially, you're reading the original. And some languages, you know, you can travel from some languages to others and without really losing anything or losing very few things. And in the case where you lose something, what I try to do is I'll write something from scratch in English that fulfills the, f the same function because rather than forcing something that would, would fall flat on the page, say, so, you know, I would rather come up with something new that plays the same function and that it's, it's, it's completely new to the English version. But there are tiny details. In most cases, we are able to, to save everything and to keep everything exactly as it is. Do you remember any particular ones in either of these books? Sometimes there are tiny elements of or wordplay, of humor, or in some elements of dialogue in which sometimes, you know, there's a lot of complex wordplay with different meanings or implying th something like that, that something is very hard to translate or travel from one language to another. In those cases, I'd rather write something new from scratch that actually plays the same function. So the reader doesn't lose anything, but it's something new that is written from scratch from English. But it, there, there, are tiny, there are tiny cases usually. Before we went on the air, we were talking about uh, Arturo Perez Reverte and the kind of reviews he got in Spain. And you were talking about how he was maybe the first modern Spanish writer to actually be published outside of Spain. And something happened. What was going on in the Spanish literary world where he, he got trashed? Essentially, what happened is this, uh, I think Arturo Pedro Roberti was the first great professional writer, the first international writer in modern Spanish publishing history. He succeeded around the world. His books could be appreciated everywhere. And, and, and he got a lot of trash. He, but for that, you have to go to the nature of the small little pettiness of the Spanish literary world where envies and jealousies are essentially tremendous. And what they would never forgive him for is that he was extremely successful in Spain, which was a great scene that they would, but of course then became successful elsewhere, which was even worse. So, so I remember for years reading these really atrocious and hostile reviews and commentaries about him. And you still can find a lot of that. And there are a lot of people that, and he's a very opinionated man. And he's a very, he, He's very honest with his opinions. He doesn't try to say what people want to hear. He he says what he thinks, and a lot of, of course, a lot of people don't forgive him for that. And he can afford to say see this say these things because he's successful and he doesn't really need to kiss anybody's ass. Especially of all these really jealous and miserable people who are profoundly unhappy with themselves and when they're a lot in life, and that I think have a conflict when they're grandiose dreams of, of, of themselves don't conform with reality and they have to face the reality that essentially nobody cares about them. And 
and, and, and there were a lot of people, I think uh, Arturo Pereira got the worst of that because he came out strong 20 years ago and he had to, he had to change everything. He had to break many molds. And uh, it's a great thing that he survived and that he, because he's a great writer and, and he can st- continues doing great work. And, but he had to, f- to get, he got a lot of, a lot of crap from a lot of people who you will never know who they are and nobody really cares, but that they're kind of encrusted there. And, you know, it's all about these petty jealousies that are very common in the literary world that they t- tend to be for, forgotten because they're so trivial and ridiculous that after the fact, nobody forgets. And, uh, you know, what is remembered is Arturo Pedro's work, which is still out there in print and you can check it out. And some of the stupid things that were said about things. Have you managed to escape all of that? I mean, is that now history and you can write without falling into that? No, I think I think something that happens in Spain especially, but I think that the, who got the worst of that was Pedro Reverte who had to break the molds. I think in my case, uh, of course, some similar, similar things happened because my work has been successful around the world. It's been popular also in Spain. It's very popular. And of course, you get some of it, but I would never think that it's as vicious or as it used to be with him because, you know, Essentially, because I don't think many people are paying attention to that. There, there is just a group, small group of people talking to each other, reading each other columns, and insulting other people and saying, "So and so is an idiot," or "So and so is a terrible person," or I don't know. And and actually, I think that maybe 20 years ago somebody was paying attention to, but the credibility of that kind of thing—it's nobody knows or cares who these people are. Nobody cares what they say, and. And, and, and yes, you, you can always find this, these things. And I think any, anybody who finds some degree of success in, in literature in certain cel- circles is going to face this kind of hostility from a specific person. But it's always been like that. And, and you know, it's, it's also part of the comedy of life. And, you know, it doesn't really matter. And it, and it tends to be forgotten very, very easily. Carlos Ruiz Afon, you've worked a lot in film wrote music for television, played keyboards, and you've written screenplays. I went to IMDb, and I didn't see any of that. Is this all Spanish language that they're just not catching? No, you won't see any of that because what usually happens is, well, you only find in IMDb is uh, things that are produced. 99% of the scripts that are written are never produced. Uh, Quite often what you do is you rewrite or you're hired to rewrite something that somebody else has written rewritten, and then somebody is going to come after you and rewrite. Most of those, uh, the credits you end up seeing in films rarely can have much to do with who actually wrote that thing. You get a lot of credits. A lot of people get credits as producers and they are not producers. So that's the nature of the industrial process of film. So in my experience, which is not very, very extensive or deep, but in my experience, essentially, you would get hired to rewrite something or write on projects that maybe you thought were worthy and eventually they would not be produced because of budgetary concerns or there was a change in the studio regime or things like that. I remember years ago meeting this successful screenwriter who had made tons of money writing for 25 years movies that were never produced. And he had this fantastic mansion in Malibu and he was going crazy because essentially he was a writer. He wanted to write things that reached people. And his staff was reaching eight guys in offices in Burbank. And none of that got produced. And, and I remember seeing, oh my God, this is, this is kind of some kind of twilight zone thing. And it happens very often. You know, there are a lot of writers 
uh, a lot of writers don't take credit, just take the cash and, and you know, and don't want to take a credit in many movies. Other take credit because they originated the the original screenplay, but they they can be completely re rewritten out of it. But due to the rules of the guile, they, they, so it's a, it's a special film. I think nowadays the, the great field for writers, where for writers with ambition and talent, is not really in film; it's television. I think the last few years, TV series are, are controlled by writers, and I think you can tell the difference when you see series like The Sopranos, Deadwood, or Six Feet Under, or any of that stuff, or The West Wing, and then you go to watch a movie in the multiplex. The quality. It's 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 million light years away, and simply because TV, you know, cannot live on hype, has to live on results. People have to tune in week after week, and they have to like it. So you need to give the power to the people who create the story, who are the writers. Well, in that regard, has there been any interest from television in either Shadow of the Wind or Angels? Yes, there's been through the years many interests and many offers and many people, and I've always turned them down, not because I didn't respect them or they were always. I think their intentions were always good, and they wanted to do, make a good movie out of that. And, and there were many good people and people I respected and knew that wanted to do this. But but I thought that the, for many reasons, I've always turned this, these offers down because I thought that these, these are books about books about reading, about storytelling, about language, about ideas, and I think they belong in the world of books. And also because they, they include this layer in which I'm trying to use the language of film and of images. I think that already the best possible movie version of this movie is already being projected in your mind in Dolby Stereo and THX sounds and <laughs> widescreen when you're reading it. It kind of pisses me off that everything has to become a movie or something like that or a video game. So why? You know, why can't a novel stay a book? Nothing can tell a novel a story with the rich, the depthness and the, and, and, and the profundity that, that, that a novel does when it's done right. So for all those reasons, as naive as it may sound, I think that it would be betraying the nature of these books if I sold them to the movies. And not because there's nothing wrong with the movies, which is a great medium, but because I just feel that the nature of these books doesn't belong in there and that they should be always be books. So that's why I've always turned down all the offers, no matter how tempting and how great the people who offer to to work in this were, which they were, uh, but because I felt that, you know, that it would be wrong. So I said, thank you very much, but no. And, and, and it, there will never be a movie of any of these books because I think that that it's beside the point. Okay, the next book, uh, have you started working on it? Not yet. Actually, I'm, 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 in many ways, I'm, I'm working on it because I'm constantly thinking about making notes. But I haven't actually started writing it. I think I'm going back to, to the writing chair, although I don't really sit that much. I tend to walk around the room when I'm writing. But uh, every once in a while, I, I sit down. And uh, probably after the summer, I think September, October, it, it's when I start working on, on it. And until then, I'm still, you know, cooking it up in my mind. And, and it, it's, it's a kind of a slow process. So it takes its time, but, but it's, it's already there. It's the beginning. Will we see David Martin again? We will, but in, in, in a way which perhaps we, we would never expect or imagine. You've been listening to a May 2009 interview with Carlos Ruiz Zafon, author of The Shadow of the Wind and The Angels Game, who died on June 19, 2020, at the age of 55. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com.
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.